what stood out was when I asked him what he wanted to do when he was older, he said, I just want to go to school. I just want to learn. It was in that very moment when he said that, I knew it was like everything made sense in my life. It was like, I've got to help this kid. This is my, this is my chance to, to make that promise from, you know, 15 years ago in Iraq or whatever it was. This is my chance to do some good in the world now and help this little boy who's lost, who's, he's lost everything. You know, he wasn't a kid like me, even though my upbringing wasn't the best or anything, or I wasn't privileged. It was full of love and, and happiness and, and positive things. And this little boy had nothing. I don't know what came over me, but I made a promise and said, I'm going to help you build a school for you and your friends here on the Horn of Africa. And yeah, it took me the next five years. Welcome to Out of Adventuring, the show about explorers and inspiring adventurers and the details behind their incredible journeys. They not only take us to their hardships and highlights, but also let us know what they have learned on these trips that has changed them and their everyday life. Hi, I'm Torben from the World Explorers Collective and today with me is Jordan Wiley. Jordan is an extreme adventurer and former British soldier. The unique story about Jordan is not really his adventures, even though they are absolutely on the high end of what you can do. He went to Antarctica, he crossed war zones, he paddled around Britain over days and months in ice cold water. All of these physically extremely challenging adventures. But the interesting thing about Jordan really is his motivation and how it developed. Because for him, the adventures are in means to an end that is much bigger. He dropped out of high school when he was 16 and without an education, he then ended up at the army, which actually told him a lot of positive things about the world, about responsibility, about values, and most importantly, about opportunities. Because it was during his deployment into Iraq and other war zones where he realized that even though he didn't come from a privileged background, that he had opportunities that many people, and especially children, never had. And first and foremost, these opportunities are schooling, education. So for Jordan, it became his life's mission at some point to go out and help people and help children to get education. And that's what his entire motivation is and why he even goes to these extreme places is to raise awareness, find sponsors, because he has an ultimate goal in mind to provide education for as many children as he can. I said for Jordan, life wasn't always easy, quite the opposite. And one of the most challenging parts of his life was when he, at a young age, realized he does not fit into the schooling system. Because there are no alternatives. You learn in a classroom and then you write tests. John, he learned on the go. This was where he was the best, by trying out things. For Jordan, that concept of learning was very, very difficult. Firstly, thank you for inviting me on, Torben. Great pleasure to, um, to be on the Absolutely. platform. It's, 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 uh, you've, you've grown it globally over the, the last few years. And, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan as well. So a real privilege to wow. be here. Such a privilege. <laughs> thank you so much. No, no pleasure. Yeah, going back to the start, what was I like in the classroom? If, if the truth be told, I, I was, how can I put it politely? I was a teacher's worst nightmare, I think, because I was, <laughs> I was disruptive. I, I didn't listen. I didn't do as, as I was told because all I wanted to do was be outside, you know, whether it was, you know, kicking a ball or, or, or running around a track or 
just be mm. climbing trees, crossing a river, camping out, whatever it was. My my life and my my development needed to be in the outdoors. And unfortunately, when you confined me to that very small space of a classroom with a set of rules and regulations and this really old school style of teaching that we've done for centuries, it just wasn't the way or the fit for me to learn. And and I really struggled. Left school yeah. at 16 yeah. with no qualifications, really, you know, and I'm not proud of that. In fact, I'm ashamed of that because as I've matured and grown older and through my time as a, a soldier and more recently as an adventurer over the last decade, I, I realized that actually not all the children in the world get education. I, I took it for granted as a child and I'm, that's something actually that I regret. So even though I didn't learn it well in the classroom, I still had what a lot of kids don't have. And that was the opportunity to learn. I have a lot of regrets about that. And I try to share those lessons with the next generation, because I remember when I was a kid and, and, you know, my parents or, or people would say school days are the best days of your life. And we all heard those sorts of sayings and expressions and nobody ever believed the parents, but actually they no, were right no. in the end. <laughs> and, and they're the same things that I say to my 13 year old daughter now, you know, ironically. Because you don't have a, you know, you don't have the pressures of normal life. You see your friends every day and you have amazing opportunities at school, but sometimes we don't realize that, or, or I certainly didn't anyway. And I think outside of school, you know, I, again, I was, I thought I knew better. I thought I knew best and I had a lot to learn. And I was, was a teenager. Again, I played a lot of football, football or soccer, you know, what that was my sport and if I wasn't doing that, normally I was getting up to no good, causing a nuisance on the local park. And, and I was, again, not, not proud of it at all, but I was in trouble with the, the police from 15 years old. I'd spent a night in a prison cell for being up to no good with, with, you know, I can't even say that I was with friends because they were just associates. You know, I come to learn mm. in the long run that these weren't friends. Actually, they were people who were older than me. They were people that I guess would would use me to do their dirty work. I, I learned the hard way. I, I got in trouble, as I say, with the police. And, and I, when I spent one night, certainly in a prison cell, I realized at that point, one of the first big life lessons that I don't want to ever end up in one of these places ever again in my life. I'd not done anything too serious, but it was serious enough for, to put me in a cell for the night for being a mm. nuisance to the society. And yeah, not, not proud of that. And, and as I say, I left school at 16 with no qualifications and Unfortunately, when, when you have no qualifications or, or you don't apply yourself in, in the education system, then actually life becomes quite challenging when you leave at 16, especially in the UK, because you know, you, you need qualifications to go into the workplace, to go into college or university, you, there are prerequisite requirements. So unfortunately for me, I, I didn't have many options at that point and I only had myself to blame. It was my responsibility. It was my actions that, that led me to that, that point in my life. It was only my actions that was going to get me out of that, that, that phase. And I ended up finding myself walking into a military and army recruiting office at 16 years old and have, have all my friends, some of them, I say some of them went to college, you know, a lot of them ended up in, in not so good places like, you know, with drugs and crime and prison and and places like that, lucky ones or the ones who did well went to college, others went to the, the places I just mentioned. And for me, you know, I certainly didn't want to go into a, a jail cell ever again, and I didn't have the qualifications to go to college. So I found myself applying to join the military. And to be honest, it was probably the best thing that I ever did because it taught me lots of the things that I lacked as a, as a teenager, things like values, you know, things like respect and courage and discipline. Selfless commitment, loyalty, 
And then all those other skills that you would get from the military, like teamwork, communication, leadership, those sorts of things. And they were things that, that didn't mean anything to me at 16 years old. But over the next 10 years, I, I really come to, to harness those, those traits and those values and embed them in every aspect of my life. So I was living and breathing those values. And actually, I've, you know, I've been out of the military now for, what, 12, 13 years. And I, in fact, I've been out of the army longer than I was in the army now. And I still live by those very same values that the army taught me every day. I, I, I often say to young people that your values are like your guiding compass, to use an adventure analogy, that they're, they're like what keeps you on the, on the straight path to going towards your goals or your whatever destination is. And when you know your values and you know what they are and, and, what, and, and who you are and what they stand for, actually life becomes a lot clearer for you because not only do you know what you should be doing, you know what you shouldn't be doing and you know what you don't want to be doing. And it's really helpful. And I think a lot of people in society don't really have values and certainly don't live by values, but those who do, I think they live much more fulfilling is the word I would use, fulfilling lives, mm. you know, may, maybe not always successful, but always fulfilled because hopefully they're doing the right thing, you know, and doing what they should be doing and, ho and hopefully making a difference and helping others as well. I think, I think that's something that I've, I've learned on my journey is actually the power of helping other people can be so fulfilling and rewarding for you as, as an individual as well. But yeah, mm. to go back to 16, yeah, I, I wasn't in a good place, but then found myself in, in, in the British army for the next 10 years. Yeah. And served around the world on operations including out in Iraq as well. At, I don't know, 20 years old, I was on the front line in Iraq for the first time. And again, in places like a conflict zone, there is no time for for growing up, you have to grow up. You don't have a choice. You know, when there's, I don't know, death and destruction and, and all these things that are going on around you that, you know, you, you, it's very hard to, to explain to a civilian who's never been to a conflict zone, what, what that looks like when you've seen your friends be, be, be killed alongside you, when you've seen children injured or ma maimed. And that, that has to have a, a profound impact on you. That has to change you. And I don't necessarily mean change you for the bad either. I think a lot of positives come from, from soldiers who serve in conflict zones. You know, we often talk about the negative side and the negative impacts, like things like post-traumatic stress. And, mm. and of course they're, they're very serious issues, but I'm, I, I genuinely also believe in the concept of post-traumatic growth and the fact that when we have, have looked adversity and challenge and death and danger in the face, actually we can, I believe we can become a better person as a result of those experiences as well. And. We can certainly become stronger and wiser and, and build resilience. And so, so I don't always think it has to be a negative, which is often what the media portray about soldiers coming back from conflict zones. Mm -hmm. okay. Already such a, such a difficult starting position, I assume in life, just going back a bit to the, to the time when you were 16, how our society is not made maybe anymore for people dropping out of school at, at 16, there's the social norms are not there. Now, looking back, it seems you are, as you mentioned, you are, of course, have regrets that maybe some things didn't, you know, didn't go as you would have hoped, or you could have done things differently. But then when you joined the army and you again, look back very reflectively, but were you that conscious about how important that step is, especially, you know, the night in the prison cell, was it a really conscious decision from you saying, okay, I need to now get everything in order earlier than other people have to, which is also a thing. A lot of people, you know, they don't move out until they're 18, 19, 20 from home. Then they go into college. Everything is 
set out for them and you had to make a lot of these decisions already with, with 16 or was it in the end, a big coincidence that just led you where you are? It's a, it's a very good question. And I, the, the, the honest answer is, I think, I think we're constantly evolving and learning. I don't think I, I certainly, when I joined the army, I, I didn't have all the answers and, 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 and for, foreseen that this was going to be my path or my destiny. I think we, wherever we find ourselves today right now is, is, is a product of the environments that we've passed through and the journeys that we've been on. And yeah, for me at 16, I didn't know that I would go to, to even when I was 16 and I joined the army, I didn't even think about that. Maybe I'll have to go and serve in a conflict zone and maybe people will die, friends of mine, or maybe I will have to be involved in the conflict itself. You know, they're not really things that I thought about. I just thought I didn't have any opportunities in my hometown. I needed to get out of there before I ended up in trouble. I loved sport. I loved adventure and loved traveling. So the army was a natural sort of route for me anyway. And nobody really pressured me into that. My, my father was a military man, but he, he didn't force me in that route or anything like that. He just said, it's an option to look at. And it was a good option. It was a really good option. And some of the best times and the, and the worst times of my life were in that, that 10 year period. But it, you know, it, the things that I've done since then, a lot of them are as a result of what I've done in the army, you know, that led me on the path of trying to help children, for example, in conflict zones now as a, as an adventurer and as a humanitarian, the reason I go back to a lot of these, these war-torn countries or remote, complex, hostile environments are because of the experiences I, I, I had in the army, because I saw, I saw things firsthand that I wouldn't want anybody mm. to see, like a lot of soldiers see, you know, I, especially for me, what really stays with me was, it isn't about of course, when you lose colleagues or friends, that is the biggest tragedy. It's the, they paid the ultimate sacrifice. But in a, in a strange way, I could process that. I could understand that some of us could die when we're in this conflict zone. So for me, a soldier dying, although it is a great tragedy, it is, dare I say, it's a reality of war and conflict that these things can happen. Whereas what I really struggle to process and still struggle to process is children getting killed, children who are a victim of the lottery of life. As, as soldiers, we have chosen to serve our country and go to these conflict zones as volunteers. You know, that we, nobody has forced us to go there. We have signed up and we've we've sworn our allegiance to the to Her Majesty, the, the Queen or the King now, and and we have chosen to volunteer. Whereas if you're a child in somewhere like, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, wherever it might be, Ukraine right now, you you are unlucky. You are unlucky in, in mm. the lottery of life because you have just found yourself in a set of circumstances that you have no control over and you can't really do much about. And that that doesn't sit well with me. It, it moved me. And, it, and, and when I saw this many times in my life, I felt compelled to want to make a difference and want to go back. And because, again, linking back to my, my, my younger journey as a teenager, even though I didn't have do well at school, what I had was the opportunity. And these kids that I meet will never have the opportunity. One third of the world's children will never go to school. You know, millions of children are displaced from their own countries and their own yep. families around the world. It's, it's incredible that the, the statistics are astonishing and, and, and they make you want to cry. It's very moving, but I was a lucky one and, and I, chose to, I chose to go back to these countries and I, I choose to help. And actually by helping those kids, it helps me just as much. It helps me deal with some of my demons some of the things that I'd faced and, and actually gives me a real feel good factor that I, that I'm doing something positive in the world. And I think also when I left the army and I took my, you know, my medals off and my stopped polishing my boots and all those sorts of things, I was missing a sense of purpose in the world. 
I didn't know what mm. my role was. I was quite, to be honest, I was quite lost after I left the military. I didn't know wh where do I go from here? What do I do? And it was only through adventures and adventures specifically with purpose behind them to help the next generation, to help young people, young children, both here in the UK and overseas. When I found that that was my, my calling in life to do that, oh, my life has been so good since then. I went through a period of really struggling with my own mental health, like, like I guess that we all do these days. But when I found that what the outdoors gives me, that, that sort of blue therapy of the ocean and the green therapy of the mountains, ah, mm. oh, there's nothing better. You know, it, it, it's everything about adventure is in my, my soul, my DNA. And I, I often say to people, you don't have to go anywhere to, to, to have a great adventure. You just have to change the way you think. Adventure is a spirit within all of us dying to get out. I, mm. I truly believe that. And an adventure, we can have we can have the best adventures every day, right? In our in our back gardens, in our hometowns. We don't have to go to some of the places I've been, you know, like Antarctica or the Himalayas or wherever it might be. You can you can have an adventure mindset anywhere in the world. I think this is one of those great lessons that unfortunately probably take too much time for people to learn or they learn it too late in life. And one of those things that, you know, maybe classrooms can teach is this just feeling being outside. I spent one night in the forest, in a European forest, like, you know, whatever, like a kilometer from the town. Suddenly you hear the foxes and you only hear the deers. Yeah. I was literally a kilometer away from, from home, but it felt like a completely different world. It does give you the sense of adventure that you can get Definitely. in a little forest just by sleeping on the ground for a night. You don't have to go to Antarctica to be put out to to these kind of emotions and also fears. I have a question. And when you said you were a bit lost after you left the military, why did you leave the military? To be honest, I, I got a bit of an injury when I was in the army and the injury, it wasn't a serious, it was a back injury, but it wasn't serious enough to discharge me from the forces. I could have stayed in the army, but it was serious enough to slow my career path down. I couldn't complete certain courses because of it. I was in a tank regiment, you see. So in a tank, it's a very tight, compact space, quite a lot of stress on the body. So I couldn't continue my career in a main battle tank regiment. Or, or, well, I could, but I wouldn't progress at the same speed as my, my peers and what have you. So I made, the, I made a tough decision to leave the army and try and pursue other things. But yeah, no regrets on that side either. I, I'm, all my experiences in the army, I, I look back on positively. I, I take lots of positives from my, my career. And also when I was in the army, the military, they paid for my whole education. I went back to school as a soldier in the evenings and I did my, all my, my sort of school level qualifications. I did a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and it was paid for by the whole military system. So wow. I wronged, I righted a lot of wrongs, if that makes sense in my army career, things that I had a lot of regrets about. I was, I'm quite proud that I was able to go back and fix them and also to show young people that. I'm still that kid that was in that, that jail cell at 15. I'm not a different person. I'm, I just decided that I didn't want to be a passenger. I wanted to go and get mm. things in life and, and I changed my mindset. And, you know, I was able to achieve that in, in, in the classroom as well, that through education in the end, although I, I certainly didn't excel, you know, I scraped through my qualifications. I, I struggled. <laughs> I think it's a great example. Also on the one hand side, it's never too late to change something, but also to the storyline of opportunities. You also need to seize opportunities when they present and you need to be grateful in your case that you were suddenly in a place and maybe the army is the only place where you could have been that would have just said, okay, we're going to pay for all your education. If you just had started, let's say just a handyman job that 
they wouldn't have paid for that education for you. You took those opportunities when they came around the second time, you took them quite seriously and were very yeah, dedicated definitely. to say, okay, this, this time I, I will not let them pass. And I do need to appreciate that they are now in front of me. A hundred percent. And I think what you say there is so important for, for anybody who, who might be listening, especially young people, because I couldn't agree more opportunities are everywhere, every day opportunities. We are surrounded by them and we have to be sharp enough and savvy enough and, and be ready for them as well, because they, they will keep on passing you by if you're not ready and you don't grab them. And it's very easy to, you know, to sit in your comfort zone and think, well, I'm okay here if that life's ticking along nicely, but these opportunities that come along now and again, they, they can change your life and change your direction and your trajectory. And you can go to amazing places, meet amazing people and, and you never know what tomorrow's going to bring. And that's the beauty of life. It really is. Yeah. Should go back to your army career in particular, your deployments into, into Iraq, because you had one particular mo there were many, many moments, of course, that probably stuck in your life, but one particular moment that kind of fueled a lot of the purpose that you now have in those adventures when, and I definitely can't tell the story the way you will now tell it, but when you saw a kid on the side of the road and you ask your interpreter a, a question where, where he was extremely confused why you would ask him that question about, about the kid. Maybe you can tell us a bit why, what happened there and how this event was in the end, one of the key pillars of why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. Yeah. You, you've done your research. <laughs> <It's good. laughs> it helps. No, it's good. Yeah, no, it was, it was. It, The first, the first time I was in Iraq in, in 2005, it was a very, it was a very tough period. There'd been a lot of intense fighting the year, the year before and leading up to our particular operational tour, we, we'd lost some, we'd lost some amazing people out there, you know, friends, colleagues, or what I would call heroes, in fact. So it, it was a, it was a tough couple of months and there was a particular patrol that I was on and I was in the, the lead vehicle on this, this patrol and we were moving to a a village called Majir al-Kabir, which is in the British military. It's quite a infamous village because in 2003, a group of Royal military police officers tragically lost their lives in, in Majir al-Kabir. It's in the, it's one of the main sort of cities in Eastern Iraq in the province of Maysan. And we were going to, to this particular town. And as we were going down this main sort of highway, what we would call a, a main transit route, you know, like a, a busy motorway for a better word or a description. There was a group of children playing, well, what I thought were playing at the side of the road. And as you can imagine, you know, in any part of the world, children and a, and a busy main motorway, they shouldn't be near each other. So straight away as a soldier, you're always looking for what I would call, we, we would call it a presence of the abnormal, something that doesn't look right or something is out of place because that would give us an indication that maybe something doesn't add up here or, you know, we should, we should be alert or we should have our wits about us. And the, These particular children, as I, you know, I'd seen them at the side of the road about, I don't know, a quarter of a kilometer, maybe ahead. And I, I'd sort of said to the two vehicles, we were in like Land Rovers and, and there was three, three of us in a convoy, if you like. And I said to, on the radio, just to warn everybody that there's a group of children at the side of the road, let, you know, let's make sure we take a wide berth. So, you know, it could be a trap or an ambush or something. I, I wasn't sure at the time. But as we got closer and closer, I realized that they weren't playing and they weren't there to do us any harm. So I, with the team, I made the decision to pull over and because they looked to be in distress, these children, they were sort of waving us down at the side of the road. 
And you have to make a, a quick decision because that wouldn't have been uncommon for us to be part of a, an ambush, you know, children slowing us down and then all of a sudden we're under attack. It felt the right thing to do at the time to pull over and try to help these kids to see what the problem was. And unfortunately, one of the children, he had, he had this little boy had inadvertently stepped on what we call an IED, an improvised explosive device or a roadside bomb for, for, for you know, he tra tragic circumstances. And the, the, the children were asking for help and my patrol, we, we got out of the vehicle. You know, we sort of secured the area and we tried to patch this little boy up. We, you know, we give him medical, medical care, first aid. We had a medic with us. And unfortunately, tragically, he'd lost a lot of blood. He'd had a catastrophic bleed. He'd, he'd hemorrhaged a lot of blood. And, and unfortunately, and, and tragically, as I say, he lost his life in that moment while we were there with him, which was, which was horrific, really. It really was. And when I was... Every time I tell that story, it gives me a lump in my throat. You know, I can feel my emotions still very raw, even like 18 years later. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Oh, such a strange feeling. And, um, um, threw myself now. And yeah, sorry. We, we, we was going, we decided to terminate the patrol because we lost about, I don't know, an hour, an hour and a half dealing with this incident. So we didn't go to our, our meeting in the end. So we turned around and we headed back to camp. And when I was going back to camp, I, I was racking my brains like how has this incident occurred what were these kids doing in this area it was a busy road and i was i was playing like all the scenarios through in my head and I, I had my interpreter with me a local iraqi gentleman a lovely man and and i said to him i said muhammad i said what were these kids doing playing next to the main road why were they not at school it's so stupid this and and for me it was a throwaway comment i was i don't know 19 20 years old and i said why were they not at school and, and Muhammad, he looked at me in such disgust and, and disdain. And he was, he looked at me with like great disappointment, almost like he was angry. And he said, Jordan, he said, these kids will never go to school. There is no school. And if there was a school, they probably couldn't afford it or, or, or even get to it anyway. He said, it's not like the places that you've grew up in. It's not, it's not like the West or the UK or America or anything like that. And when he said that, you know, really for the first time in my life, you know, 20 years old, I think I was probably. And it really made me think, wow, I got to go to school. I had it easy and I had all the opportunities in the world and I, I never took any of them. And, and that was the first time I, I really realized that school was a privilege. Having access to education is, is one of the greatest privileges, privileges that any child will ever get. And I don't mean private education. I don't mean the best education. I just mean basic education. You know, the, the, the simplest of things. And mm. I, I went back to my, my, to the camp that night and I was lying in my sleeping bag and I, I can remember I was having a little cry to myself in my pillow thinking, I just want to go home because it, you know, a couple of weeks before I'd lost a very close friend in my team, Alan Brackenbury, Lance Corporal Alan Brackenbury. Brax tragically lost his life on the, on the 29th of May, 2005. We lost three more colleagues on the 16th of July, 2005 in our sort of patrol. And it was a really tough period. And I remember saying, I remember saying to myself in that tent that night in that sleeping bag that one day I'm going to come back to one of these places that I've served in or worked in. And I'm going to try to help some of these kids when I'm in a more, when I, I, I didn't really know what that promise was going to be or where it was going to lead me, but I just knew that it was a promise that I, I wanted to keep. And one day I wanted to do something about it. And then, yeah, you know, I, I obviously served for another five or six years in the army. You know, I, di I, I didn't sort of pick up on that promise, so to speak, because I, I was very busy as a soldier. And then in, you know, five, five, six years ago now, I was 
I've been out of the army five years at the time. This is yeah, six or probably six years ago. And I was on an expedition on the Horn of Africa and I was trying to be the first person to row across a quite a dangerous stretch of water called the Babel Mandab Straits between Yemen and the Horn of Africa. And I was out in Djibouti on the Horn of Africa doing a recce, sort of looking at getting local contacts from the Coast Guard and the Navy, making, doing the risk assessment and all that sort of stuff. And I got the chance to visit a few of the villages and a few of the refugee camps. And when I was on this recce for my expedition, I met this little boy, a little boy called Ibrahim. And he told me his story and, you know, he he tragically lost his family in Somalia and he'd been moved to the Horn of Africa. He'd not seen his real family, his biological family for about, a, I can't remember, a year and a half or something. What stood out was when I asked him what he wanted to do when he was older, he said, I just want to go to school. I just want to learn. It was in that very moment when he said that, I knew it was like everything made sense in my life. It was like, I've got to help this kid. This is my, this is my chance to, to make that promise from, you know, 15 years ago in Iraq or whatever it was, this is my chance to do some good in the world now and help this little boy who's lost, who's, he's lost everything. You know, he wasn't a kid like me, even though my upbringing wasn't the best or anything, or I wasn't privileged. It was full of love and, and happiness and, and positive things. And this little boy had nothing. I don't know what came over me, but I made a promise and said, I'm going to help you build a school for you and your friends here on the Horn of Africa. And yeah, it took me the next five years of trying to keep that promise to to go on all these weird and wacky adventures and crazy expeditions around the world, fundraising to eventually in 2021, 2021 on the 14th of May, I was able to, to cut the ribbon on the school gates and, and gift this school for 250 kids with the president's blessing of the country. And it was by far, you know, alongside being a father to my daughter, the greatest thing that I've ever achieved and the most fulfilling thing. And now you know, I'm heading back out there actually in about six weeks from now with a group of 12 volunteers to go and volunteer at the school and, and do some adventures out on the Horn of Africa. So that's something we try to do every year. We, we did it last year. We're going to do it this year. We booked up for next year. It's amazing for me how adventure, which is what I've done for the last 12, 13 years, can be used in, in, in such a way that it can have such a positive and, and profound impact on other people's lives. Because People often think that, it, you know, when you're an adventurer, you just go and get to do all these cool things around the world, you know, whether it's climbing a mountain or jumping out of a plane or paddling, yeah, yeah, yeah. rowing. They think it's just it's just fun and games. But for me, being an adventurer is is actually, it's a serious responsibility. You know, if you've got a profile of any sort, if you're, do, if you're privileged enough to have these opportunities to, to go travel the world, well, then for me, I think you have to do something good with that. I think it's a responsibility to society, you know, to get to go to places like Antarctica, you know, less than 1% of the world will ever go to, to Antarctica. Climbing some of the most remote parts of our planet is, is a great privilege. And I, I don't take that for granted ever. I know that that can mm. be taken away from me at any moment. So for me, it's about using that to help educate young people through that. You know, I, I love to tell the stories of the people I've met, the nomadic tribes, the different cultures, religions. I, I love to take photos and bring them back for schools. I love to try and champion good causes for charities using adventure. Um, and, and for me, the cause and the purpose or, or, or the why is so much bigger than the expedition or the adventure. The adventure is the fun bit, but it's the, the mission and the power is, is within why you do it, I think. For me, anyway. The fun bit maybe also not always true. We will get to some of your expeditions that maybe sound fun to you, but probably for a lot of people. Not what they think of a fun activity, but just 
to understand a bit more. When you made that promise, you were already in a adventure mindset. You already were at the place where you said, okay, being an adventure explorer, this is something that I can do that fulfills me and I have the skill set. And then you started to add that purpose to it. And then how was it for you to then find these new activities, these new adventures where you said, okay, I need to have some kind of attention-grabbing adventure because that brings sponsors, not for my own sake, but I, I need to, you know, raise hundreds of thousands of, of, of pounds in order to build that school. So I need to do something big to get big money. How, how was that pressure on you to say, okay, I need to find these big things now and then actually go out and call probably thousands of, of corporations trying to get money from them? It's a challenge. It's one of the, you know, we, we, we often say when you're doing an expedition, the biggest challenge is, is not the expedition it's getting to the start line to set out on the, on the expedition, because as you say, all the sponsorship, all the kit and equipment that you might need to buy, all the, the awareness you need to spread and, you know, with social media and, and TV interviews and all these sorts of things. But actually that that's also part of the fun of it as well. Trying to make it happen, I get a lot of fulfillment from from trying to bring the whole idea together, you know, from a, some of the best ideas, funnily enough, a lot of the best ideas that I have normally start in a pub, drinking a pint of beer with friends. That's where some of the master plan normally starts. <laughs> you say something out loud and then people go, uh, you will never do that. And then you say, why well, you bet I will. And then you go out or how, how is that? <laughs> yeah. Do you know, when you're, it's like a cycle really, because I, I'm not, you know, I'm not the fittest, I'm not the fastest, I'm not the best at anything that I do. I just like giving it a go and trying my best. But I'm certainly far from the best. I'm not an athlete by any means. I'm, I'm an adventurer with an adventure spirit and mindset. And for me, how do I compete with some of the fittest and fastest people in the world? Well, well, I, I try to do things differently. I try to do things maybe haven't been done before, or I try to go to places that not a lot of people have been. I try to be creative and innovative, you know, so for example, let me think of an example running. I did a project in 2018 called running dangerously. Actually, all I was doing was running long distance races or marathons in, in conflict zones. So, so that sounds really sexy running dangerously. This guy's going to run through, through war zones and I'm, I'm from a media and attention grabbing perspective. That's really sexy. But when you strip it down and break it down, all I'm doing is running a marathon or a long distance race in a country that I've already visited before as a soldier or on my travels. So actually it's quite simple, but then what you've got to do is take that concept and you've got to give it a logo, give it a website. You've got to make it innovative and creative. And you know, for me, it's like marketing and branding. It's no different than, you know, how does the Absolutely. world explorers collective stand out in, in, in a world full of podcasts, you know, well, you, your questioning techniques, the way you research your, your brand, your logo, the, the guests that you get on. You know, you're always trying to find that, that competitive advantage in a very crowded market space. And for me, that's no different as a, as an adventurer. I think when you're doing it for a, a good cause where there is, where there is a, a tangible output at the end of it, in my case, it was build a school. Mm. I think that makes it a bit easier because there are deliverables to the world that you can be held accountable for. So it's not a case of just sponsor me because this is my bucket list and I want to go and do it. You know, that, when you're saying sponsor me because I want to change 250 children's lives at the other side of the world. And I, I want you to come on that journey with me to the point where we're literally going to be fundraising for every brick and every book that's in the classroom. I think that is a lot more tangible, tangible than, than saying, 
just sponsor me because I'm an adventurer or, or, or you can have your logo on my kit or whatever it might be. So, so, so having a purpose actually helps you a lot, I think, to attract sponsorship and things. But also, like in any business or any, any organization, for me as a, I, I, I'm trying to promise something, but I'm trying to under-promise and over-deliver. I try to keep a few like aces in my pack. I, I hold a good network with the media networks in the UK. So if I need to go on the television to talk about an adventure, I have lots of friends that can make that happen. So it's, you know, what I say to people is young people, again, especially what humans have a habit of doing, which is a terrible habit, but it's the way humans are wired is they only go and ask, they go to people when they want something. And, and it's quite, it's quite a negative, it's quite a negative mm. way of approaching life just to go to, go to, you know, I, I get it all the time. My fr friends from years ago will ring me up and say, Jordan, can you introduce me to this person? Cause I've seen that, you know, them, or can you introduce me to one of your sponsors? Because they've, they've helped you in the past and people will come to you because they want something. And what I try to do for the last six or seven years is not go to people cause I want something, but go to people and say, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Can I, can I support you in some way, especially on social media you know, I, if people are doing something really positive and I think I really like what you're doing there, we share the same values. I think, can mm -hmm. I help you at someone, one of my friends actually who's a TV presenter in the UK for the news. She's a lady for sky news called Kay Burley. And, and she's helped me many times in my, in, in the last few years on different expeditions and things for, from a, a sponsorship and a fundraising perspective. And I, I remember saying to her about two or three years ago, I said, Kay, I said, how can I pay you back for the help that you've given me? And she said, Jordan, you can't pay me back. She says, I can't pay me back. And I don't really need any help from you. She says, but what you can do is you can pay it forward. You can pay it forward and help somebody else out there, help the next young adventurer who's coming through, help the next 18, 19 year old who's got big dreams and big aspirations. That's how you pay someone back. You pay it forward to somebody else. That's a nice cycle to be in in life. And, and when you take that mantra, life starts to look after you start opportunities, start arising and, and, and more of them and good karma comes to you. And I, I'm not religious or spiritual, but the more you help other people, the better your life will be. And I, I can't emphasize that anymore. That is, that is like a factor for me. It really is. I just I couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think this is such a powerful message to send out. And this is not supposed to be some own advertisement, but it is also a bit of the value that the Works Bros Collective is funded on. We started out, the first thing we did is we gave out money to people. Before anything, that was the first thing we did, that we selected people from all around the world who couldn't afford, you know, afford plane tickets. Because as you said, I mean, traveling is a privilege. And, you know, we travel to the Himalayas, we travel to South America, but what about the people who live in Pakistan? They cannot climb their own mountains. They can't afford it. They won't ever. Th those are the people for them. A thousand pounds is life-changing. It completely yeah. changes the game. Yeah. It, and for us, it's a lot of money, but it's money that we will make back in, you know, yeah. probably months time. And that mindset, I think is such a powerful one to and always keep, you know, putting, or we say like water on these mills of keep fueling this, this forward paying is okay. You know, I just, the more you take, the more I give almost it, now, now we go a bit into these religious sayings almost, but it is just so true to, to a large extent. And I think that's, what's so fascinating about you. And there's another aspect I think that is important to mention when you talk about media attention, of course, it's great for you know, your own personal brand. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, it creates 
also some sense of accountability because you put yourself out there. You create a website, you put your face on it. You go on a TV show and say, hey, I'm going to, you know, do X, Y, Z in that place. And I will be back in six months and I will tell you how it went. Well, yeah. people will ask in six months, hey, Jordan, how's it going? And, you know, yeah. you hopefully have an answer and hopefully come back. But that also means it's tough to quit halfway because, you know, you're going to disappoint so many people. In your case, you will disappoint not only maybe yourself or, you know, your sponsors, but you will disappoint that boy that you promised the school because if you fail your adventure, then, you know, for maybe the next time it will be even harder to get sponsors. A hundred percent, but it's, and it's, it's an important point that you make there because actually when I was doing my, my final fundraiser for that school in, in 2020, it was, it, I was attempting to be the first person to stand up paddleboard around Great Britain. And mm. unfortunately, I didn't make it all the way around. You know, I, I set a world record at the time for the, the longest ocean paddleboard journey, but I didn't complete the mission. I was, I was stopped by the COVID pandemic after paddling for 149 days at sea for, for nearly five months. And it was really interesting because a lot of people, they, they, they saw that as, as a failure. And, and that was really interesting for me because for me, it couldn't have been any more of a success if I tried because... I needed to raise a hundred thousand pounds to finish the fundraising and we raised more than a hundred thousand pounds. So those, so half the people were, were focused on, you didn't get around the UK, so it's a failure. But those with what I would call the growth mindset who understood my why they saw it. Some people saw it as a great failure, but most saw it as a spectacular success because yeah. I remembered what we, the, the power of that promise to that little boy, Ibrahim. And on those nights when I was paddling, through like November and December and the West coast of Scotland, when it was frozen water and sub-zero temperatures, putting on a, an icy cold wetsuit in the three o'clock in the morning, I wanted to go home every day. I promise you, I wanted to give up there. And then I, I had had enough yeah. many times. And it was the only thing that kept me going was thinking that I had a promise to keep to that little boy. And that's why the power of, of that promise was so special. And so it was incredible, but also one of the questions that most people ask me when I go and give a talk somewhere and I talk about the paddle, one of the most, one of the first questions that people will always say is, will you go back and finish the last leg? And I will always say, no, I have no interest in putting my body through that again, because I promised a school, I built a school and I had a great adventure as well. The only reason I would need to go back there would be to satisfy my own ego. And it wasn't about my ego. It was about building a school for a little boy. That's uh, wonderful. I, I really like that. <laughs> A clear answer of like, no, I'm not coming back. Is no, is not a, coming. a friend of mine. There's a, there's a lovely man actually called Brendan Prince in the UK. He's a, he's, a, he's an amazing guy, very inspiring man. We made a deal actually. He said that, you know, if I didn't get round, he'll go and have an attempt at it. And then if his attempt didn't work, I'd go back and do the last leg. And fortunately for me, he he finished it, and he he's the record holder, the first person and the fastest person to get round the UK. And again, what people really bought. Another example, what people or, or the public really bought into with Brendan, his, his challenge, mine was called the Great British Paddle. His was called the Long Paddle 2022, maybe. And he, what Brendan did, he was a lifeguard and a teacher by, by trade. And he, he actually, he, he, one day, he, some, some young people, they, they were struggling at sea and they, they tragically was pulled onto a beach and he tried to save their lives. And, and unfortunately, he didn't save their lives. And he's dedicated his life to, to trying to spread water safety awareness. And he was raising funds to spread that message. So people really engage with his, his cause mm. and his why and, and the power of what he did. And for me, what stood out to me, not the fact that he's the first person to paddle around the UK, but what he did 
for such a powerful purpose. And that's what, that for me, that's why Brendan is such a great success and why he will go on to even bigger things, not because he, he's the first to paddle around Britain, but because of, of the, the humility and, and the purpose behind what he did. These purposes that really drive the stories to understand why people are doing it. I mean, we hear it in, you know, let's say business seminars and, and pep talks and all these things. It's always like, why are you doing something? It's not about what you do, but why are you doing this? What is the purpose? Yeah, yeah. And, and if you don't have a great purpose for anything, if it's a business idea, if it's an adventure, it doesn't really matter. If you don't have a good why, then you probably will not make it through the hard times and you will probably not try to help yourself accountable. And the, these are no, some of those things that you just need to have to pull through. It's like, you know, it's the same for people who get up every day and go to, go to jobs that, you know, I have a lot of friends who are very unhappy in their jobs. They don't really like their jobs and they get up every day and they complain about their jobs of going to work. I want to be in a job where I jump out of bed and I can't wait to get to my job. You know, I, I want to mm. be living and breathing it. And, and sometimes it's a negative as well. It's had a, I'll be very honest, it's had a negative effect on some of my relationships because I'm so focused and, and, and enjoy my work as, as, as an adventurer so much that I can't wait to go somewhere else or do something. Mm. And, and actually that's had a negative effect on, on, on family life sometimes, to be very honest, because I've, because I'm, I'm almost too driven to do something. I get tunnel vision that that's the only thing in my mind. And, and I neglect what's going on around me sometimes, which is, is, is something I'm trying to improve as a, as a person from lessons learned, I guess. Mm. Maybe this soon there will be adventures with a family where you say, well, the purpose is to have the most extreme possible version with a family, which yeah, can also yeah, be a, you know, a great thing. But talking about prices that you have to pay in order to be an adventure, you once said, a, and now I quote, that you are a serial offender for the climate change, well, which comes from obviously, you know, you didn't swim to Antarctica, you flew there and all these kind of things. And this is a, a new challenge you now take on in, in your new adventures. You've mentioned education was a big one. And now climate change and that awareness is something that you want to take very seriously and now wrap into your new adventure. What's that about exactly? What are you planning on doing there? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. I did, I did say that. I, I, like a lot of people, I'm a serial offender, you know, when it comes to climate issues, because I, I, as we've discussed, I've traveled around the world many times and, and normally on a, an aircraft of some sort, which is, is one of the worst ways to travel in terms of aviation emissions and in, into the, mm. the atmosphere and what have you. But yeah, when I was in uh, earlier this year, I was in the Arctic, in the Arctic circle in a, in a place called Svalbard, one of the most Northern towns in, in off Norway at the top of Norway, before you get to the North pole. And I started to, to, I, I was actually at the North pole expedition museum and there was a lady there and she was listening to a group of people talking in the queue and everybody was, we were all trying to get to the North pole actually. And uh, we were waiting around for some weather windows and, and this, that, and the other. She had a bit of a bee in her bonnet about climate issues because there was a group of explorers up in Svalbard who were basically saying, we're going to the North pole to, you know, collect ice samples and we're going to bring them back and, and we're going to take measurements in the lab and all this sort of thing. And she stood up and she said, let's forget all the rubbish that you're talking about. If you cared about the climate, you would not have all flown halfway across the world to get to Svalbard because this is the worst place in the world that you could fly to if you cared about the climate. And I thought, mm, when she said that, I did, you know, at the time I thought, well, that's a bit rude and a bit harsh. But actually, when I, I sort of reflected over the next few days lying in my, in my sleeping bag, I was, 
she was absolutely right. When I did a bit of research, that part of the world and the high Arctic is it's sort of melting quicker than most of the world. And actually, the worst way you can offend, or, or as I said, yeah, offend or as a, as a climate sort of, I don't know, impact is, is flying to these very vulnerable parts of the world. And it made me think about my own sort of carbon footprint and, and these sorts of things. And what I actually realized very quickly was I don't understand enough about this issue to really talk about it or, or to have a valid opinion on it. So what I decided to do was, because of course it's important and we're hearing that everywhere on the media, on the news, and every time we turn a newspaper page, I've dedicated the next 12 months and, ho and, ho and hopefully the rest of, of the future to, to learning about climate issues and to try and educate the next generation on them. And, and for me, the way I learn is by getting out there and using adventure to educate myself, sort of thought up a new challenge for 2024, which is called Tower Power, Tower Power. And this involves going to three towers in Europe. One is the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy. One is the Eiffel Tower in, in Paris, in France. And one is in my hometown in Blackpool, in Lancashire, which is the Blackpool Tower. And I'm going to try and get from, from Pisa to Paris to Blackpool in the most sustainable way possible. So I'm currently making my bike out of, of coppiced wood from the South Downs Forest. So my bike's going to be made of wood. I'm making my kayak to cross the English Channel out of plastic bottles that children have collected in the local schools. Wow. Yeah, and then I'm going to run to Blackpool and I'm going to try and do it in the most sustainable way possible. So I will source food through the villages that I pass through across Europe uh, on a local level. I will camp every night. You know, I won't be using hotels or anything like that. And, and I'm going to try and wear sustainable clothing, eat sustainably and, and travel sustainably and just see how much of a positive impact I can have on the climate through, through adventure and through travel. I'm not saying that I'm the greenest. I'm not an eco warrior or anything like that all i'm doing is say i'm willing to listen and learn and and then mm. share my lessons with the world because i'm i'm not perfect i'm far from perfect as i said i'm i have been a serial offender and but what i do want to do is learn and i'm ready to learn and i'm ready to share those lessons and for me i as i say i don't learn in a classroom but i know you could put me in a classroom for the next three years but i'll learn more in three months of doing an adventure that's focused on sustainability than i'd ever learn doing a, a degree course in it or anything like that so for me, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to share those lessons with, with children using my website, using social media, video, photography, and yeah. see how yeah. much we can, we can have a positive impact. You really have that mindset of knowing that there's a lot of gaps to perfection. And you say, well, I don't care about these gaps. I will just go out and do it anyway. Just as you said, you know, maybe, maybe not the strongest, the fastest, the fittest, not the most educated on, on climate change. You say, well, but I can still have a significant impact. And if I just find some, find some other things, then they, they will be way more important than being the best at something to, before starting doing it. And I think that's a, I'm, I'm trying to well, put like lessons here, honestly. And I think it's just great. All of your mindset that you have, I think it's absolutely wonderful saying that I, this will not stop me. Like not knowing something will not stop me from trying. And I think this is amazing. But, but I think that's what we have to do in life, don't we? I think that's what anybody... I, I think anybody who's listening or anybody, any young people, old people out there, I think, give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? You know, give it a go, give it a try, give it a shot. And, and normally, normally on any adventure, you meet amazing people. You, you experience incredible things. I will taste foods that I've never tasted. I will meet characters that I would have never come across. I will sleep in places that I would have never have dreamt of sleeping in. And that's what adventure is about. It's about going in, it's about going knowingly into the unknown. 
and, and taking the amazing lessons that will come from that experience. I like that. Knowingly into the unknown. Probably that is some part of the definition of an adventure, just not knowing exactly what you, what you throw yourself into. And well, actually, yeah, the, my friend, one of my friends who she would be an amazing guest for you, actually, maybe in the future, she's a girl called Paula Reed and she's, she has pioneered the concept of adventure psychology. She's a psychologist in, in the field of adventure and she'll oh. be very, yeah, it's quite an evolving new discipline because a lot of people do what I did when I first heard about it. I said, I said the worst thing that, that I could have said, I said, is that, is that like sports psychology? And she very quickly and rightly corrected me because one of the things we talk about sports psychology, but actually, and, and, and you'll see a lot of sports people give amazing lessons and insights that they can transfer into business and education yeah, yeah. and all these other places. And we see this a lot, but actually adventure psychology is fascinating because if you put it next to a sport of any sport, you know, whether it's football, rugby, tennis, cricket, a sport has a, is, is in a fixed environment. A sport has a fixed set of rules. A, a sport has safety measures in place. A sport has a time frame that has to be adhered to. None of those things really happen in an adventure. Sometimes mm. we don't know when it's going to end. The weather conditions change day by day. We don't know what we're going to get or where we're going to sleep. And that, for me, gives you a lot more opportunities for growth. So that's what I mean when we talk about going knowingly into the unknown. I think the lessons for, for growth and involvement and resilience building are so big in adventure. It's, you know, it deserves its own discipline. Thank you so much, Jordan, for the time. And I will pick up on Paula 100% because that sounds incredible and exactly the kind of messages that we want to spread out into the world that it's not only about, you know, the mountain, but about all the lessons that you, that you bring home and how they actually apply to so many areas of, of life. And I have one last question that I like to ask, and that is if you could now go out on an adventure and I know that you do a lot of different kinds of adventures, but you know, just imagine one and you could only bring one item or you have one very precious, one very particular item that you always want to bring. What would that be? <laughs> Great question. Oh, put me on the spot there. Can I, if I could take one thing anywhere in the world with me on an adventure. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be a bit cliched. I would take my daughter because she's the greatest achievement in my life. And I would love her to come everywhere with me and see the things that I see. <laughs> That's, it's not as cliche as you would think. I really love that answer. One day I have to like, put this all together in a bit more structured format because <laughs> it's so fascinating what people say. And you have, I think you have like three categories. You have the ones that bring nice water bottles, jackets, GPS, mobile phones. And then you have, you know, the other people that bring items that remind them of family or actually bring people like, you know, my wife or my yeah. son, my daughter. And then actually you have a, you have a third category. And I find that also very fascinating. And also the people that bring skills that just say, I want to bring my resilience. I want to bring my, you know, my like ability to, to optimism. And I thought, well, I, I would have never, I, when we started with that question, I knew we would have these two categories, people that bring sentimental value and practical value. I would have never thought of someone bringing, you know, like. It's good. Skills, I like that. It's, it's different. If I had to bet money, I would have, I would have guessed that you would be more on the practical side, being a soldier and, you know, knowing what you need. No, but you know, I just finished on, on that, that exact point, Torben, because actually, you know, one of the questions that you will be asked many times as well is, or, or one of the discussion is people talk about often the journey and the destination that, you know, they talk about the journey is more important than the destination or the destination is more important than the journey. But for me. It's never about the journey or the destination. It's always about the people. 
It's about the people whose lives you can have a positive impact on, and it's about people who you can share the journeys and the experiences with. So it doesn't matter, you know, where, where, where the journey is or where you end up. It's about the characters and the people and that you meet along the way for me. That was John Wiley, incredible adventurer and such a reflected human being. It was a true pleasure talking to him. And if you want to know more about him, about his adventures, and in particular his missions and his beliefs and his achievements on the human side, then visit his website, jordanwiley.org, or you can find him on Instagram and honestly type his name in Google and he will be bombarded with amazing content about him where you can read more and see more and learn more about all the things that he has done and get even more inspiration. And thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you enjoyed the show, please, please, please give some stars or thumbs up or likes or write comments. It absolutely means the world to us. And if you want to learn more about our guests or about the World Explorers Collective and what we do behind the podcast, visit worldexplorerscollective.com or find us on social media, text us. We love to hear from you and engage. And I hope I see you next time.